Hey everyone, Lainey here, and today is my birthday, so I already appreciate everybody who's reached out and wished me a happy birthday. It is going to be a great one, but I wanted to share this Get Vocal live stream that I did this past Thursday with author Anthony Amori. We discuss his book, The Woman Who Stole Vermeer, and it is an incredible story. And I can't wait for you to hear all about Anthony's experience in Homeland Security and the odd but very interesting world of art theft. Okay, on to the show. All right, everybody, welcome back to True Crime Thursdays with Lainey on the Get Vocal platform. I am your host, Lainey, the host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. Podcast, And with me today, I have, and it's Amori, you right? Got it. Perfect. Okay. Anthony Amori, he's a super talented individual, very fascinating. I was reading your about uh, you and your website. And I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot wait to pick your brain on all the things you're going to be talking Thank about you. today. Um, so I wanted to welcome Anthony to the show and we're going to get started. So Anthony, please introduce yourself. Um, give us a little bit of a, a background on who you are, what you do, and what the title of your new book is called. Well, thank you, Lenny. I, um, my name is Anthony Amore, and I'm in Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm currently uh, the Director of Security and Chief Investigator at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. And um, it sounds weird to have the title Chief Investigator at a museum, but I have that because our museum was the site of the biggest property theft in the history of the world back in 1990. Uh, two thieves stole um, well over half a billion dollars worth of paintings and objects uh, in, a, in a major heist. Um, so I've been there for the last 15 years and the theft is over 30 years old and I work alongside an FBI partner uh, looking for these paintings. And prior to working for the museum, I spent the previous 15 years uh, working in agencies that are now considered Homeland Security agencies. So I worked for immigration, then I was a special agent with FAA security, and then I was an assistant federal security director um, when TSA was formed after 9-11. So some of your uh, viewers and listeners might know that the aircraft that struck the Twin Towers departed from Logan Airport. So I worked on rebuilding security there um, in, after mm -hmm. 2001. Well, first, thank you so much for, you know, assisting in that. That's really important. It changed a lot of things for us, for those who um, travel frequently and to make sure we're safe. So I really appreciate that. And to me, that's, you know, some really, really important work that needed to be done to secure our country and to make sure that people traveling in and out of America are safe, regardless of um, where they're coming from or where they're going. You know, we want to make sure everybody's safe and sound. Thank you. Um, I found it really interesting. I was looking at some of your previous talks that you've given, and I found it really interesting how you made this transition from Homeland Security to security at, you know, an art place and or art museum, sorry. And I, I have to understand how that happened for you. How did you transition to that? Because it, the world of art seems, for the true crime community, seems very disconnected from what we're doing, right? You think of like high price art, you think Monet, Van Gogh's, things like that. Um, but then you realize these really high profile heists that have happened that not a lot of, you know, podcasts have talked about before. Um, and looking into the case of your new, or looking into the subject of your newest book, uh, I found her really interesting and she is pretty fascinating. And it's amazing to me that more podcasters don't focus um, on art high. So I, I have to understand how this transition happened for you. And I think it's really interesting for our audience. To well, that's, as well. A, that's a really interesting question. Thank you for asking it. So I had um, worked in federal agencies for a long time. And um, as you mentioned, and I thank you for saying it, uh, having rebuilt security at Logan after 9-11 was like a, um, I'm an obsessive person. And it was a, a, a hard job to do when you obsess as much as I do and did, but it helped. It helped <laughs> right. with the work. But um, so, so if you think about how TSA was formed, so right after 9-11, the law said that all of the security screeners at the airport had to become federal uh, employees and much higher trained and much higher uh, qualifications. Um, and we did that and we, we 
deployed 1,200 federal screeners uh, at Logan Airport. And then we had um, the next mission was within the year, we had to make sure that all of your checked bags that go onto an airplane were screened electronically for explosives. And people, uh, you know, 9-11 was a while ago now, it's 19 years. So a lot of people who, who follow, yeah. including yourself, I mean, you might not know that before 9-11, when you flew on an aircraft, all the checked baggage went onto the airplane without being screened. It could have been anything in there. So yeah. from so one yeah. day you're screening none of those bags. And then the next day we flipped a switch and we were screening 1.1 million per month. So it was a massive undertaking. Then I was asked to take over the investigations inspections branch where we um, looked into violations of security laws and such. After I was done with that, I felt like I had accomplished everything I wanted to. Um, with the government, I felt I had done everything I could do to make us safer. And I was looking for a new challenge. And I saw that the Godner Museum was looking for a security director. Um, I knew the history of the Godner Museum with this major heist that had happened. And my experience from Logan had been in rebuilding security. And I wanted, I like reclamation projects like that. I like, I don't want to go be a security director at a place that's super secure already. I want a challenge, you know? Yeah. But when I got there, uh, part of the job as well was to look for these missing paintings. And all of my career had been focused on terrorism, essentially. So it was a big transition. So your question is really a good one. Um, what I did was a multi-prong approach. First, I, I, I uh, created a couple of databases. One, to put all of the information that the museum had about the heist and every letter and every contact it ever received into a database. The next was to make a database of every art heist I could learn about. I thought that would be there's far more art heist than you can ever imagine. Um, so I started yeah. focusing on Rembrandt in particular because we had lost three Rembrandts in our heist. And uh, that resulted in a book. I wrote a book. It's right. Where is it? Let me see. I'm not good at this. Uh, it's over my shoulder. Oh, here it is. There it is. Yeah. The opposite, yeah. <laughs> it's called Stealing Rembrandts. And it's about, it tells you, you, by using Rembrandt, it tells you who steals paintings, what they do with them, why they steal them, what happens to them. And the stories are, are stranger than fiction. And as you know better than almost anybody, Lanny, that true crime is way more interesting than fiction. Um, it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. And I read your background as well. And um, I think it's, it's unfortunate that you had that experience when you're younger, but I think it really um, colors your work in a very, very unique way. This stuff is not a game to you. It's uh, personal. And that's how I feel about my work. So um, I, I made this transition. The third part, and this is really timely, um, I was partnered at first with the retired Scotland Yard investigator, who was this legendary figure. His name was Rocky. Uh, he was a Polish British guy, his name was Jarek Rokosinski, uh, and everyone called him Rocky, and he's a big giant of a man, uh, much bigger than me, and I'm six foot two. Um, uh, and he had just recovered two stolen masterpieces that were taken in England, and he came over to help us. So he broke me into the world of art theft and dealing with art thieves and taught me so much and taught me that to, again, this is a parallel with your work, um, to understand who steals art and to get art back, you have to get into the mind of art thieves. So I spend a lot of time with them and I meet with a lot of criminals and I pick their brains and become friendly with them. Um, and uh, just this past weekend, I learned that um, I got a, a I woke up to a text message that my friend Rocky had died. So he he passed away this weekend. And it's um, so it's it's. It's a timely question for you to ask me because the man who was my mentor and friend uh, has just passed away. But um, I, I, everything he taught me will be with me forever. And it has made me a much yeah. better uh, investigator. Well, condolences to your loss for that because I can't, I know what it's like to lose a mentor too. And it, it is a difficult thing to not have that resource at your fingertips and rely on your memory still of, you know, the lessons that they imparted on you. So I definitely sympathize you. with you on that and empathize for sure. Um, what I'm most interested in too, and I say this a lot because this has been so fascinating to me as I've been digging into it. I'm like, oh my gosh, why have I not covered <laughs> cases like this? Um, 
is we'll, we'll get to the book in just a minute. Cause I, I think her story is super fascinating too. Um, but I'm, I'm really interested in the psychology behind why people steal art. Um, it doesn't make sense to me because it seems like it would be over quite quickly. You know, I, I've seen uh, what like Oceans 8 and 11 and stuff, and they talk about fencing, you know, products. And I'm like, how do you people even get started in this? How do you even know where to fence things? Where's this black market for high priced art? And how is it never found? You know, we still have pieces that have been missing for decades that we have no clue where they're at. We, you know, we have maybe hints here and there of somebody who's seen it, but like where, what's the point of buying this priceless art that can't be on display? That's the key question. You know, and I had the same question when I began and the fact of the matter is that it's, it's, um, it's a bit complicated, but the art of the art behind stealing art, is not in what a great heist you pulled off. The real art would be is if you could steal a masterpiece, and, and we're talking about masterpieces now, like high-value paintings. Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the true art of it is selling it because you can't. So here's what happens. In the movies, you see like a Thomas Crown figure or someone that Tom Cruise might play, right? And they're super smart, and they have a network of people in the underworld and in um, – in uh, Russia and Japan and in some Arab countries, that's Hollywood, right? But in real life, what happens is people who steal things for a living or commit crimes for a living understand one day from whatever, for whatever reason that a museum is somewhat easier to rob than say a jewelry store. So think about a jewelry heist. It's very hard to pull off. You don't hear about a lot of them. Uh, major ones. It's very hard. Now think about when you go to a jewelry store, a high-end jewelry store, there's a lot of security you don't even think of. Like the cases are set up in a way that you can't like run in and run out. Um, the stuff is behind like mm -hmm. bulletproof, very secure glass. You can't just smash. Uh, people keep an eye on you. There's cameras everywhere. And one of the things is if they take out stuff for you to look at and someone from security is very close by you, you don't think that's odd. You expect that. Same with the uh, bank, right? If you go to a bank, you don't expect that the vault is right there. You expect to have it a distance from you and to be secured and the, even the teller is secured, right? Those are very hard to steal. Even if you rob a bank, you're only getting a very little amount of money. But what you steal is easy to fence because everybody wants unmarked jewels or cash. Now that the other end of the spectrum are museums and the whole point of a museum is to make sure that the visitors can get close to the art and enjoy it, right? So unlike a bank, if you walked up to the vault of the bank and was staring at it, you're gonna be in trouble, right? If you, if you go to a museum and you stand in front of a $50 million Rembrandt painting for five minutes, people are glad that you're doing it. It's not unusual. So yeah. thieves understand this and understand that they can get access to this stuff and it's a short trip from stealing that painting out the door. So it makes it more attractive. But unlike money and jewels, which are not highly identifiable, art is incredibly identifiable. And it's everyone knows it's missing. So you can't fence it. So these guys who steal drugs that they can fence in cars that they can fence think they can steal a painting and fence it. Once they steal it, there's no buyer. And that makes it actually harder for me though, Lanny, because if there was a buyer, I could find the buyer, right? But if there's no buyer, the thieves hide the stuff. And unlike fugitives, they uh, paintings don't have to go to the doctor or pick up prescriptions or get food. They just sit wherever they're hidden. So mm -hmm. they're very, very hard to find. They don't get sold. They're not hanging on some billionaire's wall. They're hidden in someone's attic. And that makes it much, much harder to find. That's insane. So with all of the people doing these heists, why bother still thinking if you know other people? I mean, do they even know that other people aren't successful in selling these pieces? Because to me, I'd be like, you know, guys, right. it's not worth it, you know, to 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 waste your time breaking into a museum and stealing priceless works of art to hide in your attic or put in your basement. And I think because of um, 
you know, I, I have a minor in art history with my um, degree. It, 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 it hurts my heart to think that there are <laughs> paintings in conditions that are less than desirable for the paper that they're on or for the canvas that they're on um, that have probably deteriorated beyond belief and are, you know, not even able, like people can't even tell what it is anymore. Well, you, you know, know, that's, 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 that is scary. scary. And for some <laughs> like drawings on paper, that's a real problem. Fortunately, when you talk about paintings that I, I spent a lot of time speaking to art conservators too, the people who repair art and preserve art, they can mm. fix almost anything. And the things they fix are amazing. There was a Rembrandt stolen, um, oh, awesome. a Rembrandt was stolen in California uh, back in the 80s. And the thieves held on to it and they couldn't sell it. So one day they literally put it in a crate and sent it back. And when the when the they sent it to a gallery, when the gallery opened the crate, they found the painting. It was called Portrait of a Rabbi by Rembrandt. They saw that it was kept in really poor conditions, so that mold grew between the paint and the canvas, separated the paint from the canvas. But they repaired it. Mm. These people are magicians at the things they can repair. So that doesn't worry me. Yeah. But the second part is a lot of times these older paintings like this have really settled and gone through what they say, what they call their cycles. And they are very um, mm -hmm. resilient. So oftentimes people mention to me what you just mentioned, but I remind them that like the Rembrandts I'm looking for, those were in homes in Amsterdam with no con climate control, yeah. right? And in, yeah. um, in a place that was by the water where you think humidity and, and the salty air would get to them. But for hundreds of years, they stayed okay. So I, I don't worry about the condition as much. I'm confident that professionals can fix them. I worry about the criminals and getting them mm -hmm. to talk and tell me where the stuff is. Yeah, the, I, it still boggles my well, brain. It doesn't I, make any sense. Um, Shannon and our well, you, said, you oh, asked sorry. a really good question, though, I, and I, I talked over it. It was, well, why, did, why do people keep doing it? And the key is the people that do it, don't yeah. they, they're not like you they're not inquisitive they don't study prior heists it's just a crime of opportunity for them right they don't go to the library and say let me read anthony amore's book to see what happens with these things they just do it um and then they learn and they don't do it again lanny that's yeah. the interesting part because they learn you could only do it once and it doesn't work yeah it's crazy to me. Um, Shannon in our chat said that she's heard people use art as bargaining chips for lesser punishment um, for the crimes that they've committed. Have you? Shannon, that you at all? are uh, very wise. There is um, a person who I'm very, <laughs> very good friends with who's the greatest art thief who ever lived. His name is Miles Connor. Uh, he was a Boston guy and he got in trouble for stealing a few paintings. Um, by the Wyatts. And when he got caught with them, he needed a way to bargain his sentence down. And to, to bargain that sentence down with the mm -hmm. prosecutors, he went to the MFA in Boston in 1975 and stole a Rembrandt and returned that Rembrandt in return for having his sentence reduced. So what will happen though, Shannon, in a typical situation is someone who has stolen paintings and can't sell them holds on to them in case they get arrested for something else down the road and they'll turn those in to negotiate. Mm. And so oftentimes paintings come back and you can't really find out where they were or how they came back, but that's usually the case. So that's a great question. Interesting. That makes sense. That's probably the only reason I would hold it is my get out of jail free card well or said. reduce my sentence card, you know? Um, so now um, I want to talk about why you're here mostly is because you are releasing, Tuesday, have yes. you already released? I already yep. forgot. Yes. Um, released your new book called The Woman Who Stole Vermeer. And it's about Rose. Oh gosh. I always, I want to say, yeah, I want to say. Right Jared, but that's well, there's another character named <laughs> yeah, Duggins, but you're sure her name yeah. is Rose Dugdale. Yeah. Yes. And I was looking her up on YouTube, seeing if I could see recent videos of her and everything. And 
a character this woman is. Um, and I understand why you chose her because she's very unapologetic about who she is, what she believes in and why she does the things she's done in her past. And she's still proud of it to this day. Um, so I'm curious as to how this journey for you came about and why Rose of all people to pick um, and why a book on Thank Rose. Thank you for asking that. So when I started uh, investigating art theft, I mentioned that I started looking at all the major art heists that had happened. And one of the biggest ones happened at a place called the Rustborough House in Ireland in 1974. And it was perpetrated by someone named Rose Dugdale. And I put that in my database and went on. And throughout the years of my research, her name would pop up. And one of the things I noticed as, a, as her name popped up is someone would say something different about her every time. It was never consistent. So finally, I said, you know, what is the true story with this Rose Dugdale? And I started researching her really intensely um, and found her to be, number one, the only woman who's ever done this, who's ever pulled off a major heist of a masterpiece. Number two, to have done it for a very unusual reasons, which were politically motivated. And um, number three, mm -hmm. to have lived a life that was so incredibly remarkable that at the more I would learn, I, I'm not kidding you when I tell you, I would sit there and be flabbergasted about the things that she did and the reason she did them. And she's really an unprecedented figure. I think like you, I'm very much interested in people that are outliers. So if you look at um, one of the people that blurbs the back of my book is, is John Douglas, the mind hunter. Um, he and I have like a similar approach and I got my approach from him. He knows this early in my career. I read his book and he spent a lot of time talking to serial killers. And I mirrored that by doing it with art thieves. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I found that all of the art thieves would fall under this normal curve as to why they did it and what they were. They were always men like serial killers, right? But there's always an outlier. There is, there are a couple of female serial killers and there's one major art thief who was a woman. So I had to know about her, you know, the guys are a dime a dozen. What was it about Rose Dugdale? And as I researched her life, I found I'm, I'm fascinated by old news stories. So one of the first things you learn about her when you read the old newspapers about her is because she was a woman, and this was 1974, the, the postmortems that not, I should, she's alive, but what I mean is like the, the stories after her crimes, mm -hmm. we always try to depict her as mm -hmm. this woman who had fallen under the influence of influ influential men. She was a PhD from Oxford. Mm -hmm. She had abandoned a life of, she was a one percenter. Yes, like luxury, wealth beyond our imagination. Yes, yeah. and she abandoned all that to go <laughs> yes. into this life. And again, the newspapers would say she was obviously taken by these um, charismatic men. The fact of the matter is, no, these charismatic men were taken by her. They fell under her spell. She drew them in. And she threw them, frankly, threw them away too. Mm -hmm. These two men. I think her first partner, she yeah, threw under the bus. Prison. I thought that was so funny because she was like. Yeah. And, and oh, then yeah, when he, he went, she went it. to prison, <laughs> he went to prison. She was outside protesting for him for a few weeks and then saying, uh, you know, basically saying, uh, you know, I'll always visit you. And then one day, just before the new year, she was gone. And within a year, she was pregnant with another man in Ireland, but that guy was under her spell too. He's much younger. And he was like a wild IRA mm -hmm. figure that the IRA shunned because he was so violent. And they called him Mad Eddie Gallagher because he was so crazy. And, uh, but he was under her spell. So I'm just fascinated by her. And she goes and pulls off this major art heist where you have to picture it cinematically. Um, and I think one day you will see it on, on, on a film. She, imagine an art heist where you go into this, the biggest place in Ireland, it's the longest home in Ireland, this big castle, run by these two incredibly wealthy, this incredibly wealthy couple. And there's men in there with machine guns and such, but it's a woman telling them what to do. It's Rose Dugdale right down to she's pointing out the paintings that they should steal because 
these thugs wouldn't have the slightest clue what paintings, you know, they, they're not like you. They didn't minor in art history, right? <laughs> these guys didn't minor in anything. And she <laughs> is pointing throughout this mansion, take this one, take that one. So when you look at the 18 paintings she stole, you see, wow, she, not only did they steal a lot of paintings, they stole the right ones, including a Vermeer. Um, and Vermeer, as you know, is incredibly highly sought after. His paintings are all ridiculously valuable. Uh, he only he only has 36 known works. Um, only one is in private hands. Um, if any one of his works went on the open market, it would get hundreds of millions of dollars. And I happen to be looking for a Vermeer because a Vermeer was stolen from the Gardner Museum. So, so it was just this natural match that I oh, fell wow. in love with this story. Um, the romanticism of Ireland, the the unbelievable story of the IRA, and of course this this captivating woman. Mm -hmm. She yeah, she was really really interesting to read about and and to learn about um, because, like I said earlier, she was she and still is very unapologetic about the things that she's done. Um, because mm -hmm. she felt like she had a purpose and everything um, that she was doing was meant to, you know, cause a stir for, you know, what she believed in. Um, I, I, I read something about when she when the she was first arrested and sentenced to two years of um, a suspended sentence um, because and this is very typical for um, for any female criminal, really, um, especially, you know, 70s and back, they didn't think that, you know, women were capable of committing crimes on their own. And it was truly, you know, the coercion of their male counterparts that made them act this way. So the fact that, you know, her counterpart got six years, I believe, and then she got two years suspended because, you know, the likelihood of her committing other crimes was just, you know, going to diminish after that. And in fact, I think it increased after that because she got away with it um and i think her background is really interesting she really she really turned away from things that most people would dream of having you know she was presented in front of queen elizabeth ii that's amazing that's not something that everybody gets to do her father you know was really well off she would have been really well off um and it's just amazing to me that the wealth and the possible type of influence outside of the IRA that she could have had. Um, she was very intelligent. She had, in, you know, a lot of degrees or she had her, um, she went to Oxford. She had yeah. philosophy, I think as her doctorate, I, I can't remember, but yeah, she just, she was very intelligent and it's interesting to me how she chose to use her intelligent to further a cause um, that, you see silly guys doing right like you think of the ira and you don't think of rose you think of oh these are these guys over here who are bombing things because they're mad about something you know and, and there's really like no no thought process to it but for her everything had a meaning and what she did everything had a purpose um and it's i think it's incredible that she i don't agree with the things that she did um but i do think it's incredible that she didn't care about what anybody thought about her other than she felt what she was doing was right and stick, you know, like stuck to her convictions and stuff. So um, I'm really excited for everybody to get their hands on this book um, and read it because her story is truly fascinating. So what are you hoping people get from your book when they pick it up and read it? What What are you hoping? That's they a, first of all, that was a great it? summary of her. So thank you so much for paying it. No, no, don't be sorry. It's sorry. an honor that you picked up so much from this book. It, as an author, to hear somebody recount a story like that makes you feel like you accomplished something. So don't apologize. I thank you very much. Um, you know, there's a few things I hope to accomplish. And in, in, um, one of them is just a general tell the tale of a remarkable woman. The book is really a book about feminism. All the major characters and influential characters in the book are women um, because Rose stole these paintings mm -hmm. to use as a ransom. And we and, and Shannon asked a question that relates to this uh, to use as a ransom to free two women, two young women who were the first female IRA soldiers 
who had bombed England and wanted to be moved back to Northern Ireland to serve their prison sentences. So that's the reason Rose stole these paintings was to get them moved um, to back to Northern Ireland. Along those lines, so so it's a it's really a, a female empowerment story. And um, I know it might sound strange having a man write a book about that, but I have two daughters that mean the world to me. And I think <laughs> even though, you know, I'm glad you said as an aside, even though I don't approve of what she did, and I have to say that, it's hard not to be taken by this woman. Yeah. Um, I totally disapprove of the things she did, but she's remarkable. And that's in the truest sense of the, the word. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. The other thing is because, you know, when you look at, you graciously started this interview by asking me about my career. My career is 30 years long now. Um, feels very strange saying that. Someday you'll understand. Mm-hmm. And it's split right down the middle, 15 and 15, with yes. um, working basically with terrorism and then working with art theft, right? Rose is, the, her story is one of, where one person sees a terrorist, another sees a freedom fighter. Um, And that is something I've always thought about throughout my Mm -hmm. career. Um, I have no stomach for terrorism, don't get me wrong. It it affects me deeply. 9-11 is by far the most consequential thing that's happened in my life. Um, But um, when you think about what Rose, and more than just Rose, Dolores Price and her sister, the women that did the bombing, when you look at the cause they were fighting for and the things that they experienced as young women growing up in Northern Ireland, um, occupied Northern Ireland uh, with British soldiers there, with with, um, atrocities that happened when the British opened fire on marchers at a a parade on on Bloody Sunday, you know, that U2 song, Mm -hmm. Sunday, Bloody Sunday, comes from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And this was a defining moment for... Rose yeah. Dugdale and for the Dolores and Marion Price, you you start to see the conflict behind, you know, you and I both said we disapprove of what Rose did, but Rose to this day, as you mentioned, is still proud of these things because she believed in her mission. She believed in her goal, which was to free mm-hmm. these freedom fighters, not terrorists mm-hmm. in her mind, people that were fighting against what she believed was oppressive um, Great Britain occupying the counties in Northern Ireland and keeping the the whole of Ireland from being unified. So I think anybody who reads my book will find that I'm not judgmental either way. Um, I, I tried to be very fair-minded and I was gratified to see that the, the Wall Street Journal reviewer mentioned that it was a fair-minded biography. Um, I don't pass judgment either way. I just tell the story. Um, yeah. Fortunately for me, the story is so captivating, it didn't require judgment. But I would urge your your um, readers, uh, uh, your your um, listeners, and your viewers that if they if they want a different take on crime and on terrorism, high value crime, uh, even if you're not a woman, you're going to appreciate this. But especially if you're a woman, you're going to find something about her story that speaks to you. Um, as someone who in their life might have felt um, uh, misjudged or undervalued or um, underestimated. I think there's a particular mm-hmm. audience for that. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. I, think, and I, I, I think it's really amazing how both have merged true crime, art, and feminism um, in this book have all merged together to really give something to everybody. Those are all causes that I'm interested in, obviously. Um, and, you, and you made a really great point about not offering a judgment in the book or making sure that you were um, impartial in the book. I, I try to do the same thing in my episodes is I want the audience to decide how they feel about this after reading it. I want you to either think, you know, Rose is a terrorist who should have been locked up or she was a freedom fighter for something that she truly believed in. Um, I think she, when I look at it and I look at her story, 
you know, I think about the the people that she's harmed and think, yes, she deserves to be punished for those crimes. And when I look at the causes, I think, wow, what a brave woman, because despite the consequences of any of those actions that she took, and I think even now, those those actions would have had harsher consequences for her, that um, she didn't care, that she was willing to do what she needed to do to fight for a cause that she believed in, um, and even kind of liberating those two women who, you know, were on a hunger strike at the time for wanting to move back to Ireland or serve the rest of their sentence out in Ireland. Um, it, it is really fascinating to me, um, stories that come out like this. And I think you did a really great job um, with the book itself. And it's, it's not something that I ever found myself picking up off the bookshelf Right. It's not something I'd be like, oh, I want to learn about an art heist right now. But um, the more you dig into it, and I'm so thankful that I got the opportunity to connect with you and to, you know, learn about the book and learn about Rose is because that truly opens up new avenues for, I think, everybody in the true crime community to understand, you know, that there are two sides to every story. I, I was talking earlier with somebody um, and we were talking about victims of the perpetrators and family members of the perpetrators and how some people see those family members as um, villainous and the others, other people may see them also as victims. Um, and you always have, you know, those two parts playing. And I think a lot of people will probably think the same thing about Rose, um, but you did a great job of letting the reader decide how they feel about it. And her story truly is incredible. And I, I would encourage everybody who's listening or watching even later or hearing the episode later to do your own research on it. Um, a lot of true crime junkies are notorious for doing their own research. So I would encourage you to do that because it is really interesting. And um, I, of course, I would also recommend picking up the book and reading it. We are going to give away a copy of it. So um all you have to do to win it is just send me an email with the phrase Vermeer in it and you'll be entered with your um, mailing address. It's, it's going to be great. I can't wait to give it away. I think somebody, I probably will give away two copies because a lot of people um, I think will be interested in this. Um, so how do you feel about being merged in with true crime? Um, did you imagine that that would happen? You know, that's a great, that uh, great question. Uh, with the first book, Stealing Rembrandt, it really is, it's an entertaining book, but it's criminology at its heart. And so is my second book. I wrote a book mm -hmm. about art forgery and art cons. Same thing. This book is more of a biography. Um, you know, because of who I am and what I do for a living, people look, you know, it, it gets marketed as an art heist book. Interestingly, when the New York Times review comes out, it'll mention the fact that um, it shouldn't be uh, it shouldn't be marketed as an art crime book. It's a it's it's much more than that. Um, uh, I I think that like with the first two books, if you went to Barnes and Noble or you know or or frankly uh, your local bookstore, which is always a great thing to do, you could either look under true crime or you could look under art. This book, I think you could look under true crime or art or biography. Um, and it's also a historical piece about the era, about mm -hmm. the mid 1970s. It's a good snapshot into it. Um, I work in the field of crime. Um, I have, I, I, I'm proud to write a true crime book. I'm a true crime junkie myself. Um, even if I didn't write these things, I've listened to, uh, mm -hmm. Oh, so many true crime podcasts, I can't keep track of them. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I mean, the first most influential book of my career was a true crime book called Mindhunter by John Douglas. Uh, in, incredibly influential book and influenced the series, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm proud to have it on the true crime shelf. Um, my first two books were true crime bestsellers, one Wall Street Journal, the other was New York Times. And, and uh, I love the audience, the true crime audience. Um, very few audiences have the breadth of knowledge that true crime fans do. Now, it's interesting. In my day job, when I'm investigating this art theft, people reach out to me with their theories. 
about what happened. And the theories are always way off and outlandish and ridiculous. Those people, I can also tell you, are not true crime fans. Um, because you can tell the level of thought is very basic. It's more of a, I watched CSI for five years, so I know how crime happens, right? Um, they mix, they, now I know. it's an interesting thing because even in law enforcement in security, it's one of these professions where everybody thinks they know how you should be doing your job because they've watched fiction on television, you know? And I think that the best, uh, I like true crime podcasts like yours. And I also like ones that, um, where they interview all the parties. Like one I really enjoyed was um, Down the Hill. I don't know if you heard that, it was so good, right? And you know, I loved it oh, for yeah. a couple of reasons. One, because they, they, were, they went out of their way as they should to pay respects in memory to the victims. So every episode they talked about these young girls in their lives. And they did a whole episode about the ridiculous theories and torment that the investigators get from the outside world because everybody thinks they know what you should mm -hmm. be doing. Um, it's something I hope that your, your listeners and your viewers will remember me telling them. My work has been the subject of a number of documentaries, and most of them I don't even participate. But even when I do, what you're getting from those documentaries is about 10% of reality, if that, right? Because the most important stuff is the stuff you can't say. <laughs> so I find that true crime people, mm -hmm. fanatics like, like your audience, understand that. So they don't jump to wild conclusions about what investigators should or should not have done. Rather, your, your group spend their time just thinking about the crime and thinking about what sort of people do these things and what motivates them and complicating issues. I loved what you just said about um, how people view the families of perpetrators. My, I have two brothers that uh, serve time in prison. And I can tell you from my perspective that the families are victims mm -hmm. as well, not to the extent of, you know, the victims of the crime, but families pay a very, very severe price psychologically, financially, um, when someone in their family commits a serious crime. Um, the, the perpetrator makes victims of their family as well. And mm -hmm. it's your it's your sort of audience and in, in you, frankly, that gets that sort of element people who don't yeah. get that and people who don't address those sorts of questions yeah. make for bad analysts about crime and they actually make for bad policy makers in government because they mm -hmm. don't understand really what goes into it one of the things mm -hmm. that i write about i have a um a Substack account and one of the i write about security and in crime and one of the things that gets me is that you might be aware that there are politicians that are constantly protesting that we should abolish ICE. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it, for them, it's an immigration issue. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't even get into that. But people, that's, that's such a superficial understanding of that agency because so much of what they do is sex trafficking and uh, victimization, sexual victimization, exploitation of children. And... Mm -hmm. um, protecting customs laws about things that are shipped in and out of the country and such. It takes someone who really wants to do a deep dive uh, into things like your podcast does to understand policy. And um, anytime you get involved in an issue and you only understand the, the skim surface of the pudding, um, you're, you're doing a disservice. So um, I love, I love your community. <laughs> yeah. um, so we love you too <laughs> um so let's see shannon had a comment that she made earlier sorry i missed it she said i like these kinds of stories because it makes you reflect on your on yourself especially if you find something you find the criminal sorry especially if you find something in the criminal relatable to a degree Sorry. No, you know, that's, um, you have to be able to relate, right? If you can't relate to the characters in the story, you're not going to want to read the book. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I wish I was as brave as Rose is. Um, 
it's also very scary because I'm somebody who really likes to have control over um, situations for myself, which obviously nobody can have, you know, a ton of control over anything. Um, But it's also why I think I'm so safe in life is because I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I know that that didn't work out for so-and-so. I always say I learn from other people's mistakes. Like I I look at my brothers and I'm like, oh, this is what you did wrong. And this is what got you in trouble. So I'm not going to do that. That makes sense. Um, uh, But she, like I said, uh, she just did it. And I was like, I I could never know that type. It's just not in my makeup, not in my DNA to know what that's like. I, there's been times, of course, I'm very outspoken and I stick up for myself, but I would never put myself in a situation that would take me away from my family um, for any reason on purpose, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I find that really interesting and very brave. I find her to be a very brave woman, despite, you know, not agreeing with her tactics and not necessarily agreeing with um, the way she chose to do things. But I do find her very um, relatable in a sense that some women and even, you know, men, I think a broad audience will be able to find pieces of themselves or pieces that they wish they had in their makeup from Rose's story, you know, and I think that's really incredible because a lot of people don't think that you can learn from criminals and, um, you know, both of my brothers went through very difficult times when they were younger. Um, one of my brothers went to a group home. They were on and off probation all the time. Um, but my oldest brother who had some issues as well when he was younger is now a, um, captain in the Navy. And you would never think that, you know, he's experienced racial profiling. He doesn't look like me. He's a lot lighter than me. So it's, it's really interesting, um, to see how that's happened and to see his growth from who he was as a juvenile to who he is as an adult. And those two people are not the same anymore. Um, but I think, I think it's really interesting, um, to see how that changes. And I think once you delve into true crime a little bit more and you spend a little bit more time investing in these stories and victim stories, you realize that it's not really about the perpetrator anymore, that it's truly about the victim. I think about, um, the down the hill podcast is a great example of this is there are plenty of people out there who think they know what happened or, um, who have theories on what happened, but what they forget is that their family members are actively looking at social media. Kelsey German's sister is on social media, interacting with people who have um, theories or suggestions about what may have happened or, hey, look at this. And even the ones who feel like unfortunate, disgusting people who um, feel like the girl's did it to themselves by being alone and doing this. It's, it's very dumb mentality, um, which we obviously don't agree with here, but people forget when they say these things, especially online in a broad media sense that the victim's families have access to that. Um, and it's really infuriating from a, po- a podcast standpoint and a host standpoint where you're not intending to share this story to glorify the perpetrator. You're trying to share the stories of the victims. And when people do the opposite of that, you're kind of like, Oh my gosh, it's the same. It's the same thing when people idolize, you know, people like Ted Bundy and get memorabilia from John Wayne Gacy. That doesn't make sense to me because you're, it, it doesn't work the same way. You're like, Oh my God, I have such a crush. You know, I, I mentioned a few streams ago that I had a really young, um, follower on Instagram who made her last name Cleboid, like Dylan Cleboid, one of the Columbine shooters. And she would post stories as if she was dating him. And that was her boyfriend. And she's young, like, I mean, 13, 14 years old. And I struggle myself. I have, you know, nieces that are young and everything. And I'm like, if this was my niece and I saw this, I'd be like, what are you doing? And and really lay it out there for her. Um, but what kids see is that's just rebellion. And, you know, it's it's cool to like things like that. So I think that's really fascinating. Um, she she still follows me and she's grown out of that face, thankfully. Um, but it was really concerning to see things like that um, from listeners of my show, you know, who followed me because, you know, my name is a little bit of a misgiven 
thing of what you might expect it to be. You think true crime fan club, you're like, oh my God, you're going to talk about all these, you know, crazy things and you're going to like glorify it. Um, and it's truly just because I could come up with no other name <laughs> and I've tried um, different names, but it's just the one that's stuck. And I didn't really think about it when I picked it. I, I didn't think that it would give the connotation that it sometimes gives. Um, but once people listen to the show and give it a chance, they realize like, oh, okay, it's not what I thought it was. Um, and I think that that mirrors with your book as well. Um, my mom, who's in here, um, also said something. She said, I never would have guessed it would have gotten my attention. And that's true. Same for me. Thank I you, was like, oh, this is amazing. Um, so, yeah, I, I, sorry. A long way to say that there's parallels <laughs> from how, you know, you can perceive things versus what you can see and learn on your own. Um, Shannon had another question. Shannon, thank you so much for asking questions. You're you're helping me out here. Um, she said, "Can I ask? Is the Isabella? Oh wow! Can I ask? Is the Isabella Stewart No, we reopened back in July. We were the, one of the first ones in Boston. I think the first major museum to open in Boston. But we were closed for four months. I was there every day alone. It's a um, it's a, a unique experience to be in a museum alone for a long time. And um, this is just such a sad thing. This uh pandemic um it affects so many people in so many yeah. ways that you can't even imagine and uh but we are open yeah is shannon in boston like shannon are you in boston we'll see she'd be inclined my mom said she'd be inclined oh she says she lives in connecticut but she's getting up there fast i was supposed yeah. to be in boston in may but my flight got canceled so now I know where to go in Boston. I have lots, uh, one of my headquarters for my Oh, you have to let me know there, if you come so to town. I can I show can you the crime what scene. What to do out there while I visit the whole city. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Yes, Boston. So Josh is uh, the host of the True Crime BS podcast. Um, he's covered serial killers like Kelly Cochran, Isabel Keys, uh, Isabel Keys, Israel Keys, um, and... That's it so far. So his first three seasons were on Israel Keys, then on Kelly Cochran, and then again now on um, Israel Keys again. Super fascinating. If you haven't listened to those, incredible because he has access to FBI files and everything. It's insane the amount of research that's gone into this. Uh, years in the making, truly. Um, but Josh is local oh, to okay. um, the Berkshires. So... Yeah, that's a great opportunity. We should definitely go there. Um, I'm supposed to visit him at some point next year. <laughs> so, yeah, we definitely want to go. But um, we still have some time left. And besides the On the Hill podcast, what other true crime or crime in general has Podcasts? captured your attention? One that's stuck with you for a long time. Oh, no, a crime in general, it can be a podcast about a crime or just one that you, you know, you haven't been able to get out of your head that you think about frequently and things like that. I think every true crime aficionado has one or two cases that they're like, if you oh. don't know anything about true well, crime. Well, first, uh, two parts. First, um, the podcast that stick out in my head immediately. Uh, one was by the NYPD recently, and I can't remember the name of it. It was great. Um, but uh, I really liked um uh bear brook and i really liked uh down the hill was great and oh, I, was, yes. I liked um was lisk was good um but if i could think of a true crime that sticks with me that i would like to work on if i didn't work on art theft anymore it was a a, a murder an unsolved murder in massachusetts in the 1990s in which a swedish au pair um was murdered she was only um half of her was found hmm. uh, they found half of her body in a dumpster um and no one was ever arrested or prosecuted for it so it's like the great after the Godner theft it's the great unsolved crime um in boston that i don't know if it'll ever be solved because it's been just so long and and interestingly as you guys know, when you think about the fact that someone would do something like cut a body in half, that's a pretty advanced crime. That's not a that's not the first crime someone committed. Yeah. Um, but there are no other yeah. corollaries around. It, 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 there's no like 
un other unsolved crime where someone was dismembering someone and they couldn't find the person. It's just this outlier of a, of a murder. This person had to have done it again mm -hmm. or and done something before that. You don't progress right to Yeah, right? So that one sticks out in my just head as a crime yeah. that um, that that stays with me. Um, and I'm very much interested in my retirement. What I'd like to do with my free time is I'd like to work on um, missing children too. So any type of crime that involves children that have been, uh, you know, not, I don't mean family abductions, not that those are okay, but um, when a child is truly abducted by a stranger and missing, uh, those things torment me to think of a child waiting for someone to come save them. Um, yeah, no, I know, I know, I know, I'm sorry, but that's, Ugh, don't say that. those that's are like yeah. when I don't have to worry about where my paintings are anymore, that's where I'd like to devote, devote my resources would be uh, um, abducted, stranger abducted children. Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, you can work with Nemec and stuff. They do a great job of helping, you know, get resources out there for people who whose stories don't get covered. Um, That'd be amazing. And if you need a resource, I'm sure you know people there. Um, but we have somebody who works there that we know. Um, so my mom had a question. She said, "Are is there any um, Mexican artwork that's been stolen um, that you're aware of, like by Mexican artists, mm. I'm assuming? Um, high profile, no. So I, I can't profile? think off the top of my head of a big major art heist person. Uh, if you name a famous artist, you're like going to find that something of theirs has been stolen. Um, I can't think off the top of my head of a Frida Kahlo, but you have to remember not only paintings are stolen, but lithographs as well. So there's a lot of missing Picasso lithographs, and I'm sure there are yeah. um, Frida Kahlo works that are um, missing too. But to give you a, an example of how big a problem this is, if you go on to the um, FBI's website, they have uh, what's called the um, uh, National Stolen Art File. And you can look up artists and what pieces are missing of theirs. They don't give you any details on the crime, but you can see them. And there are over 200,000 pieces of art in there. Yeah. You know, so this isn't a matter of like 30 or 40 paintings that are missing. There's hundreds of thousands of pieces that are missing. That's crazy. Yeah, I have to look that up. I'm obsessed with the FBI website. I check the most wanted all the time and Google their stories. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, Unsolved Mysteries, like created the FBI profile list for me or top 10 list for me. And so I was like, going back and forth between them. I'm <laughs> such a weirdo because I do that. I'm like, I wonder who's on the FBI list this year? Is the same guy still on there? Um, so yeah, that's just my weird quirk, I guess. Um, so we are close to our time. And I am so thankful we got to talk. This has truly been such a fascinating conversation. Uh, I have learned so much. Um, and it's truly opened my eyes to new things. And I, I truly can't wait for you guys to hear the story um, later when this episode is posted on the podcast. But also, um, when you get an opportunity to read the book, which I encourage you to do. So Anthony, if you could, sure. can you tell um, us where First of all, I have a website. It's anthonyamore.com, A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-A-M-O-R-E.com. I'm on Twitter, uh, Anthony Amamore on Twitter. Um, my book, The Woman Who Stole Vermeer, is available everywhere. Um, unbelievably, it um, it's sold out. It's sold out on um, Amazon. So if you wanted to buy it tonight, the quickest way to get it would be Barnes and Noble. Um, so it's kind of a blessing in disguise. It's great that it's sold out really quickly, but I want more in there really quickly too. Yes. Thank you. It makes sense why it is. It's a really great story. Um, in the show notes, everybody, we will put the links to Anthony's um, social media and to his website. And of course, where you can find the books. We support independent booksellers. Um, so we will make sure to have links to those as well to make sure that you're supporting local bookstores in your area. Um, and of course, if you would like to get a copy or enter to win a copy of the book, all you have to do is email tcfcpod at gmail.com. The subject needs to say Vermeer. And if you don't know how to spell that, <laughs> it is uh, V-E-R-M-E-E-R. -E -E um, 
I'll get it either way. I'll know what you're saying. Even if you don't spell it correctly, it's fine. And then make sure you include your name and mailing address in the body of the message and you'll be entered. And it's just like that. And we'll make sure it gets out to you. Cause um, like I said, you, I say this almost truly about every book that I read because um, I, I, I pick people that I think will have really good stories to tell. Um, this is truly one that's an incredible page turner. So please, 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 even if you don't win the book um, in the giveaway, go and buy it because it is truly worth to have. It's worth to put it in your library for sure. And to talk about at your book clubs. So make sure you do that. Um, okay. So we are at our time. Anthony, thank you so much for coming on here and taking the time to speak with me. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. Okay, fan club members. As I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and positively review the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast. You can also find us on Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod. And of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com.